that we are in together called Radical, and each week we're picking a different word that spells radical for us here at the City Life Church. And so uh, just to get us thinking along the right direction, uh, let's talk about cravings. Can we talk about cravings? Anybody have any cravings? In our participation moments, we've talked about favorite foods, we talk about flavors, but cravings is just something a little bit different. You, You with me? There's some foods and some flavors that if you don't have them for a little while, something inside of you aches. You you connected with that word? Okay. So I'll give you one for our family, and then we're going to participate a little bit. You can give. We're big popcorn eaters in our family. But now I'm not talking about the popcorn that they dump out of a bag at the movie theater and heat it up, right? Okay. So we have a hot air popper, all right? And, And we use real butter, right? Not margarine, right? Real butter. And it's salted butter. But there's not enough salt in the butter, so we add salt to it. All right, and here's the other piece, Kraft Parmesan cheese. You sprinkle on it. And then that kind of soaks up to the butter. It sticks to the kernels of the popcorn. And then when you get to the bottom of the bowl, there's just something of deliciousness that you can rub those. I know you guys are going to try it. You're going to try it. So if we've not had that for a few days, we call it real deal schmeal popcorn and our family. Because sometimes we do the diet popcorn and things like that. But our kids say, we need some real deal schmeal popcorn. It's a craving in our family. All right, what are, what are some food cravings that you have? Oh, cheesecake. Just straight up cheesecake? Any kind of topping or just strawberry toppings? There you go. Graham cracker crust? All right, come on, come on. Prime rib. Bleeding. You got to have it so it still moves, it wiggles when you poke it with a fork. I know. Oh, come on. Do you, do, you, do, you, do you like horseradish? Come on. Come on, we're working it now. All right, we got a dinner working. Prime rib, right? We got some cheesecake for dessert. Let's just go get something to eat right now. Chocolate. Yeah, come on. Cheese. Nice, fine imported cheese. Lynette, what was yours? Coffee. Yes. Come on. Coffee. Any particular kind? Real stuff. Yeah. Not Sanka. Yeah, not mix it in with some hot water. Although the Vias are pretty good, if you've, if you've broken into that. They're not too bad. I like the new uh, cinnamon dolce latte at Starbucks. Is that new? Is that a, that's, that's not new? Just new to me. Okay, I don't get out much. So I've discovered the cinnamon dolce latte. It's a new craving of mine. Sam? Steak. Yes, come on. Cherry. Peaky Mongolian. Chewy, did you have your hand up back there? What, what did you say? Zebra cakes? What is that? Zebra cake. My world is getting bigger by the minute. Zebra cakes. It's like a little Debbie snack cake. It's a dessert. It's, oh, it's like, oh, well, that's raising the bar if it's better than a Twinkie. Is it a vanilla cake with vanilla filling or is it something different than that? Zebra cake. All right, can you write that down? Zebra cakes, we're trying that. <laughs> I'm going to bring zebra cakes with me next Sunday. We'll be handing them out. <laughs> He's got some upstairs. Kevin? Brewster's raspberry chocolate chip. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Uh-oh, it's calling you out, Lynette, in front of everybody. Calling you out. Is there not a Brewster's down that way? Okay, all right. Was there one more? Was there someone... Paul, did you have a hand up? Did you? No? Christian. Chick-fil-A. Just everything about Chick-fil-A, right? Their milkshakes in the summertime? Stop it. Oh, come on. 
All right. So let me read you this verse, and you're going to appreciate while we were just doing all that together. Psalm 119, 103 says, how sweet, this is our life verse today, how sweet your words taste to me, they're sweeter than honey. There should be something inside of you and me that if we've not been spending time with God's word for a few days, something inside of us should ache. There should be a craving deep inside of us for the word of God that is inescapable. We are born into this world body-centric, soul-centric, right? We, we grow up with just this natural understanding and appreciation for emotional cravings, physical cravings. We have intellectual cravings. There is a hunger that our minds have, even though it escapes many of us sometimes, right? There is a hunger that our minds have to learn. And we grow up, it's just, it's a natural part of who we are. But when we make a vow of devotion to Christ, the Bible talks about this incredible miracle. We talked about it in this series, The Radical Vow, that the Spirit of God actually comes and lives inside of us. We call it your God life. Your God life is born on that day. And for the rest of our lives, we begin to learn by the power of the Holy Spirit how to live a Spirit-centric life, to let those cravings be the cravings that dominate who who we are. And we begin to realize along the way, that's what Paul's talking about in Galatians 5 when he's talking about walking in the Spirit. That's what he's saying, is that our spiritual life should be the center of our life. It should be the dominant influence over our will. And we begin to realize that our bodies were given us to serve our spirit. Our minds were given to us to serve our spirit. Our emotions were given to us to serve our spirit. Our spiritual life should be the center of our existence. And so cravings for God's word, cravings for prayer, cravings for accountability, cravings for service, putting our gifts and talents at work. You follow me? All of those things, those are spiritual desires. They're spiritual hungers. They're spiritual appetites. Those should be the things that lead us in this life. And everything else that's a part of our life should be subservient to those things. Deuteronomy 8.3 is the verse that Jesus quoted when he had an encounter with the devil in the wilderness where it says, man should not live by what? By bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's right there in Deuteronomy chapter 8. That's the first verse that Jesus reaches for. And we're going to look at that encounter that he had with Satan this morning in Matthew chapter 4. And in Job 23, 12, Job says that he craves, he desires, he longs for God's word more than he does the food that sustains his physical body. What are they talking about? They're talking about this idea of our spiritual life being at the center of who we are and the central desire as part of our spiritual life should be his word. It should be the eternal truths of scripture. We spell radical at the City Life Church, come on, B-I-B-L-E, because there is no, there is a life to this book like nothing else on this earth. Standing alone with the ability to impart to us life and healing and power and deliverance, revelation, transformation, divine guidance and hope, a radical claim that is undeniably true. And so this morning together, we want to talk about why we think the Bible's radical. What are, what are some things about the Bible that make it radical? And the first thing we want to talk about is the Bible has a radical pedigree, which means that we believe that the Bible came from God. 
They're not ideas that men had. They're not ideas that people had and that God said, excuse me, that those things, hey, I like those thoughts. Let's just put a little stamp on it and make that the center of the church. No, the Bible began in the heart of God. And he gave it to people to give to us. This book has a pedigree like no other book on this earth. So let me read to you. This is a great resource if you're looking for things for your library. It's the uh, Home and Quick Source Guide to a Christian Apologetics. And it answers a lot of big questions that people often have. Is the Bible reliable? Uh, How do we know that God is real? And uh, it it presents an intelligent argument for these things. But let me just read a little excerpt out of here. The councils of Carthage in 393 and Hippo in 397 fixed the list of New Testament books into its final form. But these books were not arbitrarily selected. They each had to meet a certain criteria. They had to have apostolic origin, meaning each book had to have, each had to have been written by an apostle or by an associate who preserved an apostle's teaching. The only exceptions were granted to James and Jude, brothers of Jesus, who became his followers after his death. This requirement also means the books had to have been written during the apostolic age, the time when apostles were still alive, ending with John's death probably in the late 90s. That's not the late 1990s. Come on, that's just 9-0, the first century. Somebody was thinking, I didn't realize the Bible was that new. They had to have been generally accepted by the church in its continuous use in worship services. The teaching of the books had to cohere and agree with accepted, undisputed scripture. And here, this is the important one here. Lastly, the books must be inspired by God. As such, they must display a self-evidencing quality in the power to transform lives. So I want to talk about each one of those just for a minute this morning. This idea of an apostolic origin. When you, when you look in your Bible you, and, you're, and you come to Matthew 18, verse 19, Jesus said a pretty powerful statement that he spoke over his apostles, the 12 apostles. He said, whatever you shall bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, a lot of people use that verse to talk about spiritual warfare or praying against evil, and we believe in that here, come on at the City Life Church, but not connected to this verse. That's not the right verse for that. Because this idea of binding and loosing had a very specific meaning in the Jewish culture 2,000 years ago. Rabbis had the authority as spiritual leaders to bind and loose. That they interpreted the Mosaic Law for people, they interpreted the writings of Moses for people, and they would bind. They would say, these things are not permitted because of what we understand the Mosaic Law to be about. And that this idea of loosing is that, that people were given liberty, certain practices in life, that you're free to do these things because of how we understand the Mosaic Mosaic law. And so I believe, as many do, not everybody, but this verse here in Matthew 18, 19 was Jesus saying to the apostles, I am authorizing you to bind and loose. I am authorizing you to expand the canon of Scripture. In Jesus' day, the Bible was just the Old Testament. It was just, come on, Genesis to Malachi. But Jesus is telling these apostles, there is more that needs to be written. There is more instruction that needs to be given. There is more scripture that needs to be expanded. And this word canon is a Greek word that means a rule or a measure, which means that the Bible, scripture, is the ultimate measure for all truth in life. 
And so in this moment, he ordains them to expand what we know today to be the 27 books of the New Testament. And it had to be written during the apostolic age. This is important because you want books that were written during the time of the lives of the people who were there when they happened. You tracking with me? So that people, if there were falsehoods, people, if there were exaggerations, people, if there were things written in there that weren't true, that there were people who were eyewitnesses to that event who could stand up and say, that's not what happened. And all of the New Testament books were written by contemporaries of the events that took place that they described. Continuous use in worship, this is important too, because there are a lot of other religions, I would respectfully say false religions, that distribute literature against Christianity. And one of the things that they argue against, is that these councils, like the Council of Hippo and the Council of Carthage, these ones that we reference in that excerpt from this Christian apologetics book, that they, they, they assert that the Bible was forced upon the Christian community. That these people got together, picked some books, and forced them upon the church. That's either out of ignorance or either even worse, it's ignoring the historical facts as we know them to be true. That these were bishops that represented congregations throughout the known world and they gathered together with a sacred responsibility and a sacred duty to answer a question. What are the books, that the congregations that you represent, what are the books that are demonstrating a self-evidencing quality to transform and change people's lives? What are the texts that you're using already in your worship services? And that's how we ended up with the 27 that they chose and canonized. It wasn't books that were forced upon churches. It were the, they were the books that were already being using widespread, and those are how they picked the 27 that we got. Coherence among Scripture. They had to agree with each other. Second Peter 3.16, Peter is already referring to the writings of Paul of Scripture long before any of these councils ever happened. Right here in 2 Peter 3.16, if you read that, he's referring to the letters of Paul as Holy Scripture and this idea of a self-evidencing quality. If you open this book, come on, this radical book, the radical Bible, and you read it with sincerity and you read it with authenticity, you cannot help but walk away and say, this had to come from someone who is divine. And as you give yourself to this book, as I gave myself to that book when I was 23, it will transform your life. I am not the same person that I used to be. Come on, in 10 years from now, I'm not going to be the same person that I am today because this book is alive, it's powerful, and it has the ability to change us from who we are into the likeness and the image of Jesus Christ just give you these verses. These are Psalm 119, 89. You can download these notes off of our website, so I'm just going to kind of cruise through these, but I I just want to give you some verses that speak to the pedigree of God's Word. Your eternal Word, come on, because it comes from His heart, O Lord, stands firm in heaven. And here we've got Isaiah 40, verse 8. It says, grass withers, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God, it stands forever. Guys, that's not a justification. It's not buy your wife flowers. I'm just saying, you know, if you never get your wife flowers, don't quote verse 40, verse 8. That's just a little marriage, just on the side, just a side note. Come on. Matthew 24, 35 says, heaven and earth will disappear, but my, this is Jesus talking, my words will never disappear. 1 Peter 1, 25, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Come on, it has a radical pedigree. And that word is the good news that was preached to you. And the last one here, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture, come on, 
Genesis to Revelation, all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. It's a radical book with a radical pedigree. For all the research that we can commence in regards to the pedigree, the origins of the Bible, may we never forget the truths therein have always had their beginning in the heart of our Creator. Giving life as only one can coming from the life. All that you find in this book, it started in the heart of God. It started in His heart. He breathed it into the hearts of men who have in turn given it to us. We have a confidence in the certainty of Scripture that is born out of our certainty in the sovereignty of God. Let me say that again. We have a confidence in the certainty of Scripture that's born out of our certainty in the sovereignty of God. If we believe that God's power knows no bounds, if we believe that God has the power to do anything, if we believe that His power goes far beyond whatever human understanding could ever comprehend, if we believe those things about God, how can we not believe that He has the ability to give us the book that we need to have? Right? Every, every other promise of God, every other power of God that we embrace, are you telling me that then when it comes to the Bible, we step into a place where we say, you know, I just, I don't know if he came through for us on that one, you know? I know he created the world. You, you go through your list of all the things that you believe God about. We, we can't step away from our belief in the sovereignty of God and say, he does not have the power to give us exactly what we're supposed to have complete, not missing anything, perfect in how it is. It's part of the perfection of God that he can work through the imperfection of people to give us something that's perfect on the other side as an outcome. He is not dependent upon our humanity. Come on, his divinity transcends that. The book that we have, it has a radical pedigree. Come on, you can put your trust in it. It has a radical power. Let's talk about the radical power of God's word. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Verse 13, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before His eyes, and He is the one to whom we are accountable. This, let's start with verse 13. This is a great promise to us. It's not to threaten us. It's not to say to us, you know, watch out because God's trying to follow you around and wait till you mess up so that He can whack you over the head, right? That's not what that verse is about. Come on, there are some verses in the Bible like that that we need to appreciate, this idea of accountability. But that's not what this verse is about. This verse is a promise to us, saying to us that there is never a situation that we find ourselves in that comes as a surprise to God. There is never a circumstance that we are in and God doesn't know that we're in it. Have you ever been in a situation, a circumstance, and you just feel alone in it? You need the people who love you to know about it. You need to tell others. You don't want to be alone in what you're dealing with. That sentiment and that feeling should never be in relation to you and your relationship to God because you read verses like this. He knows what you need. He knows what you're facing. He even knows the secret thoughts inside that maybe, that maybe are ruling over your life in ways that they shouldn't. And so then he steps in. Come on, verse 12. And he is able to bring this word to bear in your life in a way that is specific and unique to the situation that you face. In the same way we talked about last week that he doesn't give gifts indiscriminately, right? 
He gives you the gifts that you need to fulfill your destiny. In the same way, he doesn't bring to bear the power of God's worth, worth uh, the power of God's word in your life in a way that's generic. He brings it to your life in the way that you need it, with the struggles that you have, with the crisis that you're facing. And there is a power to his word that can be demonstrated in your situation like no power on this earth. In Matthew 4, we referenced it earlier. This is where it says Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, so he didn't eat any food. He just had water. He didn't eat any food for 40 days. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, right? Stating the obvious there, right? Now, that's in there because there were people in Jesus' day and during the apostolic age, just after Jesus' day, that were trying to teach that Jesus was not fully man. He was fully God, but he didn't really have a physical body. And that's an important part of Christian doctrine. He was both fully God and he was fully man. And so Matthew's putting this detail in here because he wants people to know that Jesus had the same vulnerabilities of humanity that you and I have, which makes the miracle of his perfect life such a powerful thing enabling him come on to lay down a perfect sacrifice for our sin so it says that he was hungry the tempter came to him and said if you are the son of god tell these stones to become bread okay if that had been you and me what would we have said bread are you kidding me i just turned all that sand back there to a lamb feast i'm stuffed right there's not power like that that he's going to ever give to us there's a measure of power of christ that he's going to give to us but part of the, 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 the paring down of the power that he gives to us is because he knows that you and I would always misuse that power. Come on, you know you would. You would never make it through a fast ever in your whole life if you had the power to convert anything into food. You wouldn't do it, right? You'd tell your friend, I'm famished. They'd be, why? I'm fasting. How long has it been? How many days? Days, it's been 32 minutes, right? Philly cheesesteak right there. Come on. He withholds a measure of that power. Because there's something to be said for us being dependent upon his power. Come on, it deepens the intimacy that we have. But for Jesus, that's not the case. He had all the power, all the power that he had in heaven, he brought it with him to earth. So when he went on a 40-day fast, come on, that's something. Because there was not a moment in time where he could not turn to the nothingness of space around him and create a feast that would have fed his body. And he chose not to do it. But what does he choose to do? when he's facing temptation. It says that Jesus answered. This is an important teaching out of this text because it gives us permission to speak to our temptation. Now, we're probably going to live our whole lives and we're never going to have a personal encounter with the actual being of Satan, who's a real being, right? A fallen angel. Most of us, we're going to live our whole life. We are never going to encounter him. But Matthew 4 is not given to us to prepare us for the counter that we might have with the devil because that might not ever come. Matthew 4 is given to us to teach us how to deal with temptation. And one of the ways that you deal with temptation is you have got to find a comfort level with talking to your temptation. You've got to find a comfort level to do what Jesus did and talk out loud to the temptation that you are facing. So let me give you an example. Thought control. 2 Corinthians 10.5 talks about submitting every thought into the captivity of Christ. Come on, guys, especially us. Come on, being in control of our thought life with our struggles that we might have with inappropriate thoughts and lust that there's a struggle for guys so often that our minds are given to us to serve us, not to rule over us. 
We're supposed to have dominion over our thought life. And so when there might be some, some temptation for inappropriate thoughts, we've got to step in and do what Jesus did. We've got to talk to that temptation. We have to say to that temptation, this is the one that I use. This is a cornerstone for me, both of them. 2 Corinthians 10.5, I say to those temptations, to those thoughts, come on, I'm submitting every thought right now into the captivity of Christ temptation i'm not going to give myself to that way of thinking and i speak to that thing as if it were real now i'm not saying you do that when you're walking down the street right because then you know somebody might call 911 on you but you find a place you find a place in your private life where you can talk out loud to the temptations you're facing if you're in a public place come on you can talk to it in your mind you can talk to it in a moment of quiet prayer but if it's something that continually berates you you find a place where you can get alone and you can begin to talk out loud to that temptation and you talk to it with god's word because that's where the power is philippians 4 8 come on this should be a cornerstone for you Find ways to remember what the verses say. I call this the tenor, PLA, extra powerful prayer. Whatsoever things are true, come on, tenor, TNR. Whatsoever things are true and noble and right, PLA. Whatsoever things are pure and lovely and admirable, extra powerful. Whatsoever things are excellent and praiseworthy, Paul says, think upon these things. So sometimes, come on, for us, it might be thoughts of discouragement. Sometimes for us, it might be thoughts of, well, God must have abandoned me. Come on, those are temptations of your thought life that you've got to begin to speak out loud to and say to that temptation, come on, shut up. I'm only going to think about things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Whatsoever things are excellent and praiseworthy, those are the only things that I'm going to give my mind permission to talk to. Speak to those temptations and I am telling you that you will experience the same thing that Jesus experienced in the wilderness you'll experience victory in your life one of the reasons why you don't experience victory in your temptation is because you're not speaking to those temptations with the power of God's word all right come on as we move into the holidays let's talk about physical control come on we're getting real here at the City Life Church we talked about this last night we had the big chili cook-off and people were like great you're going to talk about gluttony when there's 45 pots of chili and desserts and cornbread Come on, Lynn Dodd made some cornbread last night. It's like, anybody like corn pudding here? I, I grew up in the South, right? I'd love me some corn pudding. I, I think I'm having a craving for it right now, actually. So she made a cornbread that was really, it was really just like firmed up corn pudding. It's like if someone, if like Jesus stood over a pot of corn pudding and turned it into cake. Are you with me? It was just amazing, amazing. Tolvanaz, you have got to get that recipe for that cornbread. But if we're not careful, our cravings for our physical bodies, they will rule our lives and they'll take us to the grave before we were supposed to get there. There should be something inside of us with our physical bodies when temptation comes, whether it's for food, whether it's for inappropriate expressions of our sexuality, whatever it is that our body is craving that is not of God, we have got to learn to speak to those temptations with the power of God's Word. Psalm 24, 1, it's one of my all-time favorite verses in the Bible, says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Your body, my body, belongs to God. It belongs to Him. And so when those temptations come, we have got to find a comfort level to talk to that temptation and say, we're not going there. I'm not going to follow around this temptation. We speak to our bodies. Body, come on, get in line. You belong to the Father, and we're not going to do anything with this body that dishonors Him. Genesis 1.28 is the verse in the Bible where God gives Adam and Eve dominion over the earth. You and I should have a sense of authority over ourselves. We do not have the freedom to be victims 
to our physical bodies, to be victims to our emotions, to be victims to our thought lives. You and I have been given dominion over the garden of this existence. They were given dominion over the garden of Eden. I believe that was a literal place, but it was also given to us to be a metaphor of the human existence, of the human experience. Your garden is your life. It's your sphere of influence. It's the realm that you live in, the relationships that you have, the vocation that you've committed yourself to, the work that you do to build God's kingdom. Everybody has a garden, and you should have a sense of authority over the life that you have. We should not be driven around by our bodies, by our minds, by other people's influences, by temptation that comes. There should be something inside of us when we're facing temptation, especially with physical control, where we say, come on, Genesis one twenty-eight, temptation, I am in control of my life, not you. Paul wrote to the church of Corinth that there's no temptation that's taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful and will make a way for you to escape. There is no temptation that God will allow you to face that's beyond your ability to resist it. We never have the freedom to say, the devil made me do it. Because God's put a word in your hand that is powerful, that can overcome any temptation that you would ever face. Listen to this. Come on, you think Thor's got something. Listen to this. Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Come on, anybody seen the movie Thor? Yeah, come on. Don't tell me a guy that watching that movie didn't think, okay, I would like to hold that hammer at least once in my life. God's given you a hammer, something beyond that. That's an imagination. This is real, and you can wield this to crush the temptations that you face in your life. All right, let's talk about a radical prophecy. It's a radical book because it has a radical prophecy. Now, prophecy is a big concept. It's a big idea. I want to hone in on just a narrow part of it just this morning in regards to the Bible. But the uh, just want to share this because we believe in prophetic moments. We believe that God speaks. A couple of years ago, I was, we were at the campus in, in uh, Newport News on a Saturday, and I was praying before the service. And, and I felt like God spoke to me this word that I was supposed to share with someone. It was a word of encouragement. It was a word of hope. And so when I feel like God gives me something like that, the next question I ask is, God, who am I supposed to give this to, right? It's a gift that he gives to us that we're supposed to give to somebody else. And so the, what I felt like he spoke to me, I want you to give it to the person that's going to sit to the right of Jenna. I said, all right, okay. But God, Jenna doesn't go to our church, right? You ever have those conversations with God where you feel like he needs a little bit of help, right? Like he's experiencing some dementia, divine dementia, is that biblical, right? It's like Jenna doesn't go to our church. She goes to the, the church in Williamsburg. She comes every now and again, but she's seldom here, right? So I'm God, you know, did I hear it wrong? Is it because, right, I ate too much pizza last night because I wasn't in control of my cravings, right? What, the right of Jenna, what, what is that about? God said, no, to the right of Jenna. She's going to be here. I'm like, all right. So I'm, I'm in the worship service. You know what I'm doing, right, during worship? Looking around. Is Jenna here, right? Sure enough, if Jenna doesn't come walking in through the back of that door, plops right down into a row. I'm telling you, I'm just about ready to explode, right? I mean, when God speaks to you with such a degree of specificity, and then it comes to pass, and so then I'm looking at who's, the, and, and then there's, this, there's a couple sitting right next to Jenna. So at, at the, during the, the opening of the sermon, I shared this story, and I just went up and shared this word with this couple, and we prayed over them as a church, and then after the service, they came, and they talked about this situation that they had been dealing with. Come on, and those words were exactly what they needed to hear. God's a God of the prophetic. He wants to whisper things in your ear 
that you're going to in turn whisper into the lives of other people. Be, being a prophet doesn't mean that you have to step back into the Old Testament and talk in some odd language. They did the things that they did in the Old Testament because that was the culturally accepted way that prophets function. God's not asking you to, come on, like Ezekiel, walk around half naked in the middle of your city doing all these weird things, right? People say, well, I'm supposed to do it because that's, no, no, that's what he asked Ezekiel to do. And Ezekiel lived in ancient times. He's, he might ask you to do something that makes you conspicuous, but he's not going to ask you to do something that makes you odd. Do you understand the difference between those two things? And this world of the prophetic doesn't have to be something that's strange. It should be something that when it happens, even if it's new to somebody, it should be something that says, wow, there is no doubt in my mind. I don't even know if I believe in a God, but I know that this came from somebody who is a God. You with me? It should breathe life into people's lives. The Bible wants to do that for your life every day. Every day. There are many elements to prophecy found in Scripture. A message, future events, personal revelation, and most certainly, how the Bible supernaturally, prophetically anticipates your day. We need to spend time in God's Word every morning for lots of reasons. But for one, the Bible is a life unto itself. I can't tell you how it works. I'm just telling you. You do it for the next 30 days, you're going to find it to be true. It anticipates your day. You will find yourself in conversations with people. Come on. And then all of a sudden, they're talking to you about it, and you're like, oh my, oh my goodness, I just, I, I just read that. That's in Psalm 119. I just read that today, right? The Bible has the ability to anticipate your day. Is that going to happen to you every day? It might not happen to you every day. But I'm telling you, if you begin a pattern consistently of craving this radical book and spending time with it every morning, you will begin to discover there is a prophetic nature to the Word of God. I, do, I cannot explain to you how it happens. I don't care what reading plan you use. I don't care what strategy you approach to read the Bible. If you spend time in it, you will find that it begins to anticipate your day and prepares you in moments to have what you need to bring a word of encouragement and hope, something that's God-breathed in the moment. We call it a rhema word. Listen to this. This is out of the Expanded Vines Expository uh, Dictionary for uh, New Testament Words. It says the significance of rhema, which is, there's two Greek words in the Bible for the word word. There's rhema and there's logos. Rhema, the significance of rhema as distinct from logos is exemplified in the, the injunction to take the sword of the spirit, which is God's word. So right here in Ephesians six seventeen, it's not the word logos, which you find in Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and was God. That's logos. Here the Greek word is rhema. And here the reference, listen to this, this is powerful, is not to the whole Bible as such, but to the individual scripture which the Spirit brings to remembrance for use in time of need. A prerequisite being the regular storing of the mind with scripture. You have to build your logos so there can be a rhema. You have to build your knowledge, we're going to go there next, of the Bible so that the Holy Spirit has an inventory to work with, so that he can reach out and grab a verse, he can reach out and grab a word, and it becomes a rhema moment in someone's life, where it is God-breathed, and it's undeniably born out of heaven, given to you, that you share to somebody else. I want to be in a church, which we are, where the worship sets a rhema set, Right? which is what Kevin Tully does, which is what Celeste Agate does. Are you you're tracking with me? We don't want to gather together and sing songs off of a list that they just put together out of a song bank. We want to gather together and know that that's a rhema moment, that God in moments of prayer have spoken to them 
these are the songs that are going to awaken people to the Spirit of God this weekend. We want to be a part of a rhema time of worship. We want our kids going in there. Do we want them to have a good time? Sure we do. Do we want them to laugh and play? Sure we do. But we want leaders in there, those kids, whether or not they understand these words yet or not, know that they've come out of a rhema moment where God has breathed life into them. We want to be at a church where the sermon is, is delivered, is put together in such a way, whether it's me or somebody else. It's not because someone found something they thought was interesting online or downloaded some outline off the internet. We want to ram a moment. We want to, we want to be in an environment we feel like that God is breathing on us and is speaking to us, and He wants to use you every day of your life in that same way. And it will not happen to you unless you give yourself to the building of your knowledge of God's Word. Ezekiel 37, 7 says this, So I prophesied as I had been commanded, and while I was prophesying, there was a noise and a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. If you've not ever read the story of Ezekiel prophesying over the valley of dry bones, you need to read this story, because God wants to use you in that way in your life. Stepping up into friends' lives who marriages might be failing it's a valley of dry bones. Stepping up to families that might be in crisis. Come on, military families that, where the uh, husband or a wife is getting deployed for an extended period of time or heaven forbid they get bad news. That God wants to use you to step up into moments, valley of dry bones moments in your life where it seems as though there is no hope and he quickens a word inside of your spirit that's born from heaven that's given to you that you are able to breathe a rhema word, the powerful word of God into the world that's around you. Come on, a radical plan. Let's talk about this. I got two more. We're going to cruise through real quick here. Come on, Joshua 1.8. Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so that you will be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. Come on, I want to prosper and succeed in everything that I do. I'm just, I'm just, I want to. I hope you do. Not for material wealth, not for some increased standard of living, but by God's standard. All right, I want to hear him say to me, well done, my good and faithful servant, when I get to heaven. I want to, be, I want to prosper in this life in a spiritual sense. Sometimes does that have a counterpart into the material world? It can be if God's trying to prepare us for generosity. But that's not the measure of success for the Christian life. There should be, we want to have some sense of prosperity. We want to have some sense of success. And right here, Joshua lays out part of the plan, the radical plan that the Bible gives to us. Study, meditate, and obey. There are three words in the Bible that sometimes they're used as the same word, but they have a very distinct meaning at other times. Knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. Knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. Sometimes they're synonymous, but there are other times when they have very distinct meanings. And it's the distinct meaning of knowledge and understanding and wisdom that gives us the radical plan of Scripture. It's this idea of studying, it's the idea of meditating, which is understanding, and it's the idea of obeying, which is wisdom. God wants you to build your knowledge of the Word of God. You have to invest time in this book to build your inventory of what's in there. That's what the Bible contains. Your knowledge of the Bible should grow and build over time so that you can step into places of understanding. He wants you to know that the Bible says love your enemy. That's just knowledge. Understanding is when you show up at work tomorrow and the person that grates your nerves gets started at 9.01. Come on, right? And then all of a sudden, the knowledge of God's Word presents you with a moment of understanding. 
I know that he says I should love my enemy. And what I understand now, because now it's personal, I have to love Bob. You, you with me? It's where knowledge becomes understanding. Wisdom is not about intelligence as much as it is about obedience. Wisdom is willing to step into the moment and do what you understand to be true. A person of wisdom is a person of action. A person of wisdom is a person who has a life defining faith in Christ. The world is full of people who have a knowledge of the Bible. The world is full of people who have an understanding of what it means, but there's not quite enough people in the world, come on, who are wise because they're not living it out. Come on, we want to be a church that helps people live it out. Listen to what Jesus says. Come on, he was trying to teach us this in the Sermon on the Mount with a great parable that's the capstone of the greatest sermon ever preached. Anyone who listens to my teachings and follows it is wise. Wisdom is about having a heart to obey. Wisdom is, that's why even children can be wise. They can have a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of understanding and a whole lot of wisdom because they're already living out what they understand to be true as it relates to them as a follower of Christ. God wants us to be wise, but there cannot be wisdom without understanding and there cannot be understanding without knowledge. Listen to this. I am not wise until I do what I understand to be true, which begins with knowledge, leading to understanding, culminating in wisdom. There is an investment of time that you and I have to be willing to make in this radical book so that we can be a part of the radical plan. Your knowledge of the Bible will not grow as it sits closed on your bookshelf in your house. You've got to open it up and you've got to pour over it all the days of your life. And as you do, your knowledge grows. And then the Holy Spirit begins to take that knowledge and bring to you understanding. And then come on, with God's help, you have the desire that you need to begin to live out those things that you understand to be true. All right, come on, last one. A radical prayer and a radical praise. The Bible is a radical prayer and a radical praise. Listen to this, Colossians 3.16. It says, let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. There are moments in our worship service where we intentionally bring it to a pause, right? And it's not because they can't figure out what song they're supposed to go to next, right? It's not because the worship leader is going, I do not remember the words to this next verse, right? There are moments in our service where we intentionally bring it to a moment of pause so that you can be invited into a moment of spontaneous worship. So that you can begin to find your own song. So that you can begin to express your own heart. So that you can begin to express your own thoughts to the creator of the universe who is in this room with us even now. Those are intentional moments. And one of the places that we reach to to find the words is oftentimes in God's word. In those moments, find a verse that you can begin to talk to God about. I can't sing, so I'm not going to do it for you right now because that would just be scary, right? Then you'd be resisting some temptation. But you begin to maybe say those words along with the melody of whatever they're playing up there. I am telling you, if you have never done this before, you're going to experience something radical in your own life when you allow yourself to begin to praise your Creator with the word that He's given to you. A great one is right out of Revelation 4. I'm not going to read all of this to you. 4, 8, B, verses 11. This talks about the worship that's happening around God's throne all the time. You and I can step into a moment that's happening in heaven at any time in our life. 
This is one that I reach for all the time. In those moments, oftentimes when the band comes to a pause, that I jump in there and I'll just begin to talk, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. I want to be a part of the song that's happening in heaven. In that moment, I can jump in and just be a part of a worship service that is taking place, surrounding. One day we're going to be there, but come on, we don't have to wait until we get there to participate in it. So our worship sets every week are designed for that. Down there at the bottom in verse 11, You're worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. All of this world, God, even my life, let it be pleasing to you. Use God's word to step into spontaneous moments of worship. I'm telling you, it's going to create a radical experience of intimacy with God in your life. This idea of a radical prayer, using God's word as a platform for prayer. This this verse, I, I was reading it through my daily reading plan, and I felt like the Holy Spirit just spoke it to my heart. This is my prayer that I've been praying over the church for the last several weeks. Enlarge your house, build an addition, spread out your home and spare no expense, for you will soon be bursting at the seams. Your descendants will occupy other nations and resettle the ruined city. So every day, I've got it right on my iPhone, I pop it up and there it is. I just pray through that over a church. We don't be a large church for a number. Come on, we talked about this the other day. We don't want to be a large church for a number. We want to be a large church to have an influence and an impact in our city. It gives us right at the end of this verse why we want to be bursting at the scene. We want to send people to the nations of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to be a church that walks into ruined places like this neighborhood that we're going to adopt, Catherine Circle. We want to be a church that walks into ruined places and see lives of families and people rebuilt. Come on. So I hope that there are some verses that you're going to find. Maybe you're going to pick this one up. Maybe the Holy Spirit's going to give one to you. Maybe it's one that you're going to pray over your family. A verse of Scripture that begins to be a prayer for you. The Bible is our pantry for both prayer and praise. You show me someone who feels inadequate in prayer and praise, and I will show you someone who lacks time in God's Word. Come on. Stand with me as we pray. Let me read you this verse as we close. This is out of Jeremiah 15, verse 16. Listen to what it says. It says, your words were found and I ate them. Come on. Your words were found and I ate them. Your words became a delight to me and the joy of my heart. Father, find us to be a people here at 222 Monticello today in Williamsburg, Virginia. Come on. This Sunday morning in October, you would find us to be a people who have a heart that aches for your word, that we would be hungry for this radical book, this radical Bible, Father. We want to feast upon it. We want to feast upon it. Father, if there's anything that we're going to be gluttonous about in this life, you give us permission to be gluttonous in our appetite for your word. Let us be filled to overflowing. In Jesus' name, and everybody said together, amen. Come on, we'll see you next week.